Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction, our final episode of the year, our final episode of this season, and the finale of Fleischman is in Trouble. Happy New Year. I hope I'm catching you before your festivities. Before we get into the show, I did want to call out some deals that you may want to take advantage of. Sona and I will be discussing multiple shows on Showtime this year. We're kicking things off in a couple of weeks covering the Brian Cranston show, Your Honor, and then piggybacking off of that in March as we segue into the second season, very highly anticipated second season of Yellow Jackets, also on Showtime. And I did want to call out a couple of deals. First of all, Amazon is offering almost all of their subscriptions at $1.99 for two months. Those prices do go up to $8.99, $9.99, whatever the standard price is per channel after the two-month introductory period. So do make sure to cancel if you do want to cancel at the end of the two-month period. But just to call out that the Black Friday deal price is now active again on Amazon Prime channel. So if you wanted to binge some of the shows we've been covering here at the end of the year, make sure to check that out. Of course, many of you are getting Apple devices for Christmas. Remember that you do get a three-month free Apple TV Plus subscription. If you have been wanting to catch up with Ted Lasso and some of the other excellent Apple TV shows from the past year, Severance, Bad Sisters, the recent Will Smith Emancipation film, just some of the things you can catch up on there as well. And lastly, a deal that I'm taking advantage of right now, Paramount Plus, also only until January 2nd, so please do jump on this if you're hearing this and you're curious about this deal. You can get Paramount Plus and Showtime for an entire year locked in for $5 a month. So if you are a subscriber to one service, but not both, a very simple upgrade to take advantage of what's going to be a lot of content this year across all of these services and maybe prices we won't be seeing given the health, financial health of a lot of these streaming services. Speaking of that, Peacock continues to have its 99 cent per month subscription deal if you buy for an entire year. And there's a lot of Peacock content coming out this year that actually looks pretty good. They've been a pretty weak streamer, but they have a pretty impressive slate of shows coming just starting this very month. Plus they are the first release window for Universal releases. So for example, the Jurassic Park movies are all available there. So those are some of the deals you might want to take advantage of. And as I mentioned, most of these deals are all ending on January 2nd. So I do hope you're catching this episode early and you do take advantage of those deals. If any of these services sound interesting to you. As I mentioned, we will be covering Your Honor on Showtime and also in parallel, we'll be discussing The Last of Us, the HBO TV series their next big expensive prestige series. Both series are launching in about two weeks. So stay tuned for that. As far as this episode, we will be primarily discussing the excellent finale of Fleischman is in Trouble, and then wrapping up the conversation we began last week, talking about our favorite shows of last year. If you'd like to share any shows that you've discovered or rediscovered in the past year, and you wanted to make a recommendation, please do drop us an email need some introduction at gmail.com or record a short voice memo on your phone and email it to us and we'll include it in the show. If there's anything that you've been watching and you'd like to get our feedback on it or would like to promote it to others, please do drop us a line. With that out of the way, let's jump into this conversation. And once again, Happy New Year. Go to bed feeling 
Sona, so this was the final episode of Fleischman is in Trouble. Mm-hmm. This will be our last episode of this season of the show, our show. And of course, apropos of everything, it's the very close to the end of the year. It is the final episode of Fleischman is in Trouble. And we'll be kicking off our next season of show in the new year. We will be discussing Your Honor. We will be discussing The Last of Us. And I think I'm going to be adding a segment on our episode, Sona, I was looking at all the shows that are coming out next year, and there's so many really high quality shows that I'm looking forward to, but I can, it's just daunting to even know if these shows will actually premiere <laughs> in the calendar year. Plus, there'll be unexpected things that will suddenly appear on, on the list. So I'm thinking maybe we'll kick off like every week and just say, here's some highlights of what to expect this week. And then we could just have that as a little segment each time. So maybe you're not listening to the shows we're covering, but maybe you want to have a little update on what's coming out. Hey, as you mentioned earlier, I actually do a lot of research trying to find shows for us planning months ahead. So uh, since I've done that research, I might as well share it with the public as well. (laughs) (laughs) And just things that I'm curious about. And even some things oftentimes I'm watching that I don't get to recommend or things that I don't get around to watching, but I do want to at least mention because I'm sure there are people out there who are equally interested and you could add it to your watch list to catch up with later. When there's downtime, which, when is that? (laughs) Seriously. But given the fact that all these streaming companies are collapsing, (laughs) there are some very, very good deals in the near term. And I have a feeling that a lot of these companies will not be around in a year or two. So uh, we may want to appreciate the glut of content we're going to have in the next year or two, because inevitably, when there's half as many streamers out there, there's going to be a lot less content as well. Mm. But primarily, I want to talk to you, Sona, about the finale of Fleischman is in Trouble, the liver. So my first question to you about the title, I actually expected when I previewed this title for this conversation, that there would be something, there would be a case like where with a liver donation that he is caught up with, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Unless I missed it. There is a, uh, his patient does pass away. Mm-hmm. So there is that aspect of him being a liver specialist, but I did wonder if there's a pun here in the liver as in, you know, living one who lives. I don't know if it was supposed to be a callback to the, I assume it was in the first episode. I'm not really sure. He's talking about why the liver fascinates him so much to maybe, maybe to his residents interns. I'm not sure what they are, but Mm -hmm. talking about how resilient it is and its ability to heal itself. That is a very, very good observation, Sona, actually. Yes. As you're sort of saying that, (laughs) yeah, it's true that the liver, even you can get transplant, even a small part of the liver and grow a whole new liver. Right. You just need a half, I think. Right. Exactly. And maybe to the point exactly that, that even if you lose part of your liver or damage part of it, you can survive. And even a partial liver can build a whole new life. And, you know, speaking to having a liver in half, maybe this is also like a metaphor for a divorce, right? Mm -hmm. Splitting uh, these uh, duo in half. I'm going to go very quickly through the plot and you can interrupt me because I have a much broader conversation to have about this, which I thought was maybe the point of the whole show. Mm -hmm. But in very brief terms, we start with Libby. Yes, (laughs) Libby. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, in the final episode. (laughs) Exactly. Elizabeth, right? So I said another way to remember that, uh, that she shows up at Toby's house and says, I've been with Rachel 
she had a nervous breakdown and basically lays out everything that happened. And this sheds a very negative light on Toby, where A, not only is he pretty uninterested in hearing this story, and it doesn't seem to shock him or to cause him to reassess his treatment of Rachel or his expectations of her. He also states something here that I hadn't seen earlier in the show where he basically says like she's having another one of her breakdowns. So this may be a pattern that we've seen in the past where she has disappeared before. And given that, if we assume that to be the case, it's not the first time she's disappeared for a few days, maybe not for a few weeks, but for a few days, that maybe she has struggled with these same issues in the past, then he should have definitely, we, you know, we were touching on this last week, he should have definitely walked into that apartment because regardless of his bruised mm -hmm. ego and assuming she's having an affair and maybe she was i mean apparently she was but still if he knows this is a pattern for her he maybe should presume that yes she's having a breakdown and this may not be a two or three day or a, a long weekend mm -hmm. breakdown if she's gone for weeks <laughs> he, he should be extremely concerned so in a way it shows an even more negative light on him. What, what did you think about this opening sequence of the episode? I mean, his response is really cold, both yes. as a former, you know, albeit former spouse, as someone who is the mother of his children, and as a healthcare provider. Yes. <laughs> I mean, on every side, his response is like unfathomable to me. And honestly, I, I actually felt, I didn't even understand why Libby left her there sleeping. I felt like that was a little irresponsible. Right, I felt right. like she should have waited there until she woke up and brought her to the medical appointment and then maybe left. I feel like there are just baseline concerns for human safety that were being disregarded there. But Libby, obviously, way less culpable here than Toby. I might have misread that. But given the fact that she states that she's been out of pocket, out of communication with her family for days. And she had texted them the day before, alluding to the fact that she was with Rachel, not by name, but saying, I, I have to help somebody out. I'll fill you in later. It sounded like this was a couple of days later, just given that time frame as it was defined. So this is how I read it. And I could be wrong. This is so late at night. This is not immediately after being with Rachel. This is like so the subsequent day. So I actually did read it that she did stay with Rachel and did potentially, if she was with her during the day, take her to that medical appointment. And now this is the end of the subsequent day. That's how I read it. I mean, uh, but, either way, I still yeah. like, I mean, I just felt Libby like that was a strange thing to do. Not yes, like yeah. with Toby, where I felt like that's a horrible thing to do. Um, <laughs> right. I do think we're seeing a shift now in the the whole narrative device yes. mm -hmm. of Libby telling the story yes. and everything, you know, she's hearing a lot secondhand and the shift from things that are secondhand to things right. that are firsthand mm -hmm. and the prism kind of, it, it's a different angle, right? That she's seeing things from now. I think also some of that is at play. Like I think very yes. much here, mm -hmm. there's the whole idea of an unreliable narrator. Yes, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. you know, the perspective changing as the story evolves. But I mean, I do think it's quite believable that he reacted with that coldness. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I don't think it's particularly exaggerated, but I think it's a shift from hearing all about how horrible Rachel is via Toby to actually being a firsthand participant in these events. Yep, exactly. And I think that's the big thing I want to talk about once we get through some of these minor plot details, is that shift in the focus of the show to Libby's narration. Maybe, and I'll just tease it here, that maybe that's what we've been seeing this whole entire time. Not only the creation of this book, which obviously we are mm -hmm, seeing, mm -hmm. but if anything, 
the fact that maybe the real focus of this show from the very beginning, uh, it, it kind of recontextualizes everything, is Libby's exploration of divorce through these other characters, either these people in her life. Yes. And I think we also see in this episode that in a lot of ways, Libby's story and Rachel's story are the same story. Oh, yeah. You know, even though they're very different people, the experiences and feelings they're having are very similar and the things they're struggling with are very similar. Oh, absolutely. You know, after we have this very negative view of Toby in those early sequences, we do also see some positive spins on him that he takes the family to the Vanta Black exhibit and they are able to go and experience it without <laughs> experiencing sheer terror, <laughs> which is funny that someone actually speaks to that, right? The fact that people mm -hmm. <laughs> that they, you know, that it, which is true when they were first developing this as part of a, I think it was a military project, an experiment to see how dark and uh, absent of any color and texture they can create a substance that like the people who were experiencing it were having like these existential crises as they you know experience the actual color of the thing i so. could totally <laughs> see that happening to me I, it's <laughs> right. so believable yes. so I, I almost feel it happening to me as i'm sitting in my living room <laughs> just, just discussing it just kind of, yes. just just discussing it as, yeah. and you see how he is a good dad to his daughter and the issues she has you know like embracing the fact that she is making up her own mind as far as her religious beliefs. I thought that was a really beautiful scene. I also liked how he helps his son with uh, speaking of Schrodinger's cat and this uh, the uncertainty principle there. And uh, the, that was interesting as well, kind of these different versions of reality. Yeah. I mean, my kid is only five years old, but this seemed very advanced to me. I'm a little bit yes. worried about my responsibilities as a parent in the upcoming years if... <laughs> This is the level of work they're doing at that age. But yes. <laughs> if you have existential crises from looking at Vanta Black, wait till you start getting into uh, particle physics. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing we see much later in the episode, speaking of this kind of playing with, you know, uh, these kind of metaphysical concepts in physics, we also see this beautiful kind of idea of the block universe, that this is all happening at once. Yes. We also see him finally accepting the fact that he was very cruel to that husband whose wife had basically died. And he does give him a moment, allowing him to mourn there for him. But then we shift the focus to Libby and her marriage. This is very literary. And maybe this speaks to the creation of the book. I actually found this very impressive. In a way, is this whole show, even more explicitly than I kind of teased at the beginning of our recaps here, about the creation of this novel? I had originally said that it is explicitly what we see in the text, right? She actually tells mm -hmm. Toby, this is the book I'm writing. And of course, we're witnessing the book that she wrote. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking even more than that, speaking of unreliable narrators, how much of this actually happened exactly mm -hmm. as described and how much of it is Libby herself in her mind experimenting with what would it have been like to be Seth and never had been married? What would it be like to be Toby divorced. And now I'm hooking up online and woo, this is fun. Oh no, but wait a second. Now the kids are with me too. So it makes sense. And then of course, like you mentioned the fact that in her current state, she feels like, you know, would I go back to work and have all those ambitions again? And then in that version of herself, she's having a nervous breakdown the way Rachel does. Right. So how much of this is the author experimenting with these scenarios in her mind? Not to say these things didn't actually happen, but how much of it is just her interpreting what's happening to these other people, like personalizing it right in, into her own experience. And is the whole show basically her wrestling with 
should I stay married? Should I go back to work? Should I have never gotten married? And like basically using these characters to explore all those ideas. I think clearly she's having whatever you want to call it, a midlife crisis, an existential crisis, obviously, right? I'm sure there is some creative license, but I feel like a lot of it is fairly concrete just because in those final scenes where Toby's asking her what happens next. She says, I'm not creative Mm -hmm. enough to figure out what happens next. So I think she has a lot to go on. And then there's, you know, some license involved in it as well as my speculation. Yeah, that's what I kind of find fascinating in the show. I think that to read the show literally, I do believe that what we're seeing in the show is happening to these characters in the show. But I feel like there is almost like a metatextual reading of this, where this is the author herself exploring these topics through these characters, right? And I believe in her life, there probably are characters who had some of these things happen to them, and she cobbled them together into this story. But I find it interesting that you can read two layers of the story simultaneously, which, you know, it just deepens the material, honestly. You know, you and I joke about this in connection with my own perspective of life all the time. And now there's even a label for it that's come up in the last couple of years, right? That like main character syndrome. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? Like I definitely have main character syndrome and I think she does too. It's so- sort of something that you supposedly learn when you are a teenager, right? It's that moment, I forget what they call it in psychology, but where you realize that everybody has an interior life and you're not the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Libby is wrestling with that in this show once again. And maybe it's something that we all kind of acknowledge when we're teenagers, but don't really believe. <laughs> and then we have to kind of rediscover it because I feel like that's what she's doing, right? Her husband is explicit, explicitly telling her she's looking at the neighbors. I don't want to talk about these boring things. And he's trying to tell her they're all wrestling with the same things you are. This is how they cope with it. But if you actually talk to them, you'd realize that like, yeah, these are like these surface level conversations you're having. It's not like you're the only one that's, you know, Mm -hmm. dealing Mm -hmm. with like midlife and ennui, right? Mm -hmm. Like like Mm -hmm. they are as well. You just have to Mm -hmm. acknowledge that fact. And I think that that is something that Libby is not acknowledging at that moment. The other visual metaphor for it is when Toby is there at the end of the episode, looking at all these other apartments in New York City. And it's like that discovery, once again, that in every single one of those apartments, there's another person just like him, right? Wrestling Mm -hmm. with all these same things. And it's something that he is not acknowledging. It makes me wonder how much of that is explicitly Toby and how much of it is her, Libby, as the author of this novel, exploring that idea through Toby, Mm -hmm. right? She's basically making Toby have that realization that she is simultaneously having. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to one more point, which is she specifically says to Toby, I don't know what happens next. Maybe Rachel just knocks on the door. They give it another shot, right? Or maybe there's just like a glimmer of hope and that's how the novel ends. And that is explicitly what we see here. So my question to you, going back to the idea of how much of this is the author's perspective versus the events of the story itself, do you believe that that's actually what happened? Or is this just Libby trying to come up with a final act in this story? I'm really torn about this. First of all, because I kind of believe like Rachel should be in a more intensive mental health program. Mm -hmm. So, So I'm not sure that she'd be around to put the key in the lock. But I think it's something that happened figuratively, if not literally. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Like, maybe not that night, maybe not in the rainstorm, maybe not with the key in the lock. But at some point, there was a reconnection between the two of them on some level, whether to effectively co-parent or to rekindle something or figure out what had gone wrong. I mean, that part, 
like she said, I'm not creative enough to figure out what that part is supposed to be. I do think it was not sustainable what was happening, or ideally not sustainable for the sake of your kids, if nothing else. So I do think there was some sort of reconnection, and that's what that represents. What do you think? I think in the moment, it represents exactly exactly that. If Toby can allow her point of view into his mind, that there might be a chance, not necessarily that they're you know romantically involved again, but at least can co-parent and be compassionate to each other. And I think that's all it represents is just the hope that it's possible. You know, we only see her in in the doorframe. We don't even see explicitly right. that it's her. So that made me think even more so that it's maybe a metaphor for the future. Like you mentioned, healing is possible, but I don't think it's that neat. I mean, nothing in this story seemed that neat. I think this is really, it, it's explicitly her trying to write the ending of the novel. I mean, we see it right there, right? She says, this is how I would read the end the novel. And then that's how we end the story. We have been this whole entire time witnessing and experiencing the novel itself. And, yeah, uh, and yeah. again, the the parallels between the two stories because she's the one, right, that comes home right. in the exactly. rain mm-hmm. yep. and gets back into bed with her husband and tells him how wrong she was and how sorry she is. And also another parallel, right, that he says to her, um, Libby's husband says, right, you always come back, yep. which then made me think like, well, what has she been doing before exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I thought the exact same thing. And that's where I kind of the whole ending of the show is what made me start thinking how much of it is her seeing this happening, right? Just hearing mm-hmm. secondhand stories, maybe even from the horse's mouth, maybe thirdhand, and then personalizing it in using these people in her life or characters that she's inventing one or the other to uh, explore these possibilities. Like, would it be better? Mm -hmm. We see it here explicitly, her experimenting with it. She runs into an old classmate. She's like, you won't believe this. I rehooked up with my high school Mm -hmm. sweetheart and we're going to move into New York, take turns watching the kids week to week. And in her mind, she's suddenly thinking like, yeah, that's going to fix my problems. Seems extremely impractical, by the way, for one person to be living in the city and the other in New Jersey when you have children together. But sorry, just an aside. (laughs) Oh, I totally completely agree. (laughs) Then what she tries to do, she tries to reconnect with her high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. And we not only find out that he just ends up making some kind of crude fantasy um, in their communication. But on top of that, we know that, you know, from her previous voiceover that she found out that he just became some accountant somewhere. (laughs) Like there was like there was no glamorous, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It was purely, you know, just, yes. he was living the same mundane life that she was. It's all just a fantasy that these things are going to work out. And that's the realization she has to make at the end. And maybe like you mentioned, her husband says, you always come back. Maybe this is the realization she makes over and over again. It always seems like the grass is always greener, but not only there's always trade-offs for everything, but there's also the practicalities. Like for example, yes, if you could be the person you were before and abandon your family, then maybe you could do that. But can you abandon your family? Like, you know, like are you capable? Are you capable of doing that? That's pretty monstrous, actually. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I thought her husband was being a real jerk. What she did was awful. Yes, but his stonewalling was really yes, terrible, also. Yep. But if this is a pattern with her, yes, yes. then I'm a little bit more understanding of yes. why he was such a jerk about it. Because, yeah. you know, eventually someone's going to reach their limit with that kind of behavior. I felt the same way. I felt that they were being a little, the family in general was being a little too cold to her and not giving her a chance to make up for her, you know, right. like a lost weekend or something. Come on, that's not the end of the exactly. world. Exactly. Yes. But then, like you said, the fact that he says, you always come back makes it sound like this has happened before. Uh, you know, you can go to your party. I'm going to be home with the kids. Don't worry about it. Like when he's saying all these things, 
it's not like he's just saying it to be cold. It's like, this is what he does. <laughs> this right, is the pattern they right, follow. Right. When she goes yes. into one of these things, he just picks up the parenting yes. until and she comes back. And waits until she gets it together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. With that being said, what'd you think of the finale? I thought, I mean, I think you, te- you previewed this in your text to me. I-, I love this, right? This was really strong. I loved finale, it. Right? As is typical for me lately. Uh, I don't know if it's middle age or parenthood or what it is. I cried. Um, I thought maybe the last half hour of it was just really poignant, really moving, really sweet, really hopeful. It conveyed something that a lot of us are -hmm. are dealing with at this stage in our lives. And I had said to you in the text, I don't know how much someone 20 years younger than us or 20 years older than us would like this because it might not hit the same marks, right? Right, Because you're in a different stage of life. But I think it really captured that idea. And I remember you and I having a conversation about this actually quite a long time ago. It was probably 15 years ago. But the idea of nostalgia for being young, Mm -hmm. because none of it is written. Anything could happen. Right. Who knows how this all turns out. And that's exciting and hopeful. And there's so much wonder to it. And then reaching middle age and going, well, I know how most of it turns out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and well, how do I feel about that? And how is that different from what I wanted for myself or what I expected for right. myself? Mm-hmm. And am I the person I thought I would be 20 years ago? And if I'm not, why not? You know, is that my own fault or is that the circumstances fault? I mean, right. I think it, it wrapped up so many of those feelings. And then the sentiment that I think a lot of us come to, and I think it's the right one. Well, regardless of all that, look at all I have, because we are so fortunate in so many ways. Right? Wouldn't I be stupid to not appreciate what I have in this moment, regardless of whether it's what I thought I would have and who I thought I would be? I have so much and I am so lucky that like, should I really be dwelling in that from the past? whether it was what I expected or what I wanted or not, there's so much good here right now in this moment. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was the most poignant thing for me as well. Just this declaration of something that, I mean, that I think anyone can sympathize, especially if we're in our age group, but the idea, it happens even when you're younger, the idea that, you know, we tell our kids, you're going to go to college and you could be anything you want to be. And then 10 years into their career, it doesn't matter if you thought you were going to you know, whatever, even be like an animator, like my nephew's really into computer animation. The reality is that right now, that means that he can potentially design his own video game one day. The reality is probably going to be like just, you know, adding like one layer to, uh, you know, the graphics on a particular video game. So it's not going to be as creative as we thought it would be, even if you don't have kids, even if you haven't limited your options in that regard, you like romantically, let's say, for example, you still have the reality that life has just imposed these things on you. And then you can just leave it all behind and then go start a new career or something. But then there's the security. And like you said, there's these constant trade-offs we're making. And it's these conversations we have with ourselves asking, am I making the right trade-offs, right? Like inevitably I have to make trade-offs. Am I making the right trade-offs? And of course that becomes even more oppressive theoretically when you have these responsibilities, family and the, you know your parents getting older and your children mm-hmm. getting older and all the responsibilities you have to them to shepherd them through life, you know, and you feel like, well, where is my life? Like, when do I get to be selfish, basically? And I think that we all have to deal with that. (laughs) And like you said, it's a very potent exploration of all of that. And I don't feel like these are conversations that are had, I mean, in popular entertainment, but like you said, it might have had a limited audience given the 
overall success of this show. I'm sure if you've heard this far in, you you either have already seen the show <laughs> or you have no plans to watch it. So you're allowing yourself <laughs> to be fully spoiled on it. But I really would recommend people check this out because I thought it was really exceptionally well done. The performances are incredible. By the yeah. way, did you notice, this is just something I noticed when I was looking at the bios on each one of these cast members, but Lizzie Kaplan and Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes, as was Adam Brody, right? So you have like these, the main players are all like teen stars. <laughs> Do you think there's something in the casting intentionally there? That's funny. I had, what was Jesse Eisenberg in? He, he uh, was in The Squid and the Whale, but by then he's like 20, oh, 20 21, okay. but okay, he okay. had a sitcom. He, he before Squid and the Whale, not a not a hugely popular one, but uh, but it's interesting that they've all basically been working since. I mean, well, first of all, shout out to my so called life, right? Yes, Which mm-hmm. was an amazing, amazing, and horribly short lived show. <laughs> right. If it was on TV right now in a marathon, that would be the rest of my day for sure. <laughs> really quickly, by the way, Jesse Eisenberg was on a show called Get Real in 1999. It was like another high school show. Interesting. Yeah. Not, not that I know the show. Not that I know. Yeah, I'm trying to like rack my brain for it, but I'm not finding it. Yeah, I mean, that is really interesting, but they all kind of. Lizzie Kaplan have... was in Mean Girls. <laughs> just just one high school right, right. reference for her. Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything to that, <laughs> but. I'm not like a Claire Jane super fan, mm-hmm. but I've enjoyed seeing like the evolution of her throughout these years. I think it's kind of a nice thing when you like grow up with an actor and. Yeah. see the different choices they make and the different things they're in and like oh i remember when i watched her in whatever my so-called life it resonates for me in a nice way anyway yeah it's interesting to uh to think about them being on these shows when they were so much younger and it made me curious just once again I, not something i thought about at the moment but just i'm like did they cast them because there is this is there potentially some resonance in seeing these actors mm. in this moment when we all have, you know, people of a certain age like us have memories of them as children, like yeah. you know, children or teenagers minimally, right? Or young adults minimally, right? It's not only like they're saying like, when I was younger, I was so different and I had all these different options. It's like, we saw them when they were younger. Like we knew them, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we knew them back then. So I wonder if there's some aspect to it that adds resonance. Anything else you want to touch on that I might've skipped for this episode or across the season in general. I think they've done a really good job. I think we touched on this last night too in our private texts uh, using music covers. I thought they've done a pretty good job with it. And I was pretty surprised actually in the final moments of this episode to hear the lyrics to Total Eclipse of the Heart. You could actually take the lyrics of Total Eclipse of the Heart and it's kind of a framework for everything that happened (laughs) in this show. (laughs) True, true. I know. Is there a Spotify list for this show? Because I would definitely listen to it. They've had a lot of great music. I haven't searched for it, but I have found in the past, like, for example, The English, which is another, another show that it takes place in the 1880s, but they have like one needle drop per episode of contemporary music. And I thought that use of music was so potent in a similar way on that show, by the way. Thematically, you'll have a contemporary song that ties into the themes of that particular episode of the show. Rather than me tracking all this down, has someone already made a playlist? And, right. and my experience recently is, yes, someone has already done it. So yeah, track I'm going to have to look for that. Broader thought. On a deeper level, one thing we didn't discuss that I also think, you know, it's related to everything we talked about, Mm -hmm. but just to specifically say it, and I think is very universal, is Libby's feeling of, in today's terminology, we would say like not being seen. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, she really feels misunderstood by everybody around her and she's 
trying to get herself back to a place where people understand her. And that's why she's reconnecting with these college friends and, and all of that. And that moment where Toby says to her, like, I see you, I see all of you. I thought was really beautifully done and very moving. Yes. That was really nice. Just that kind of, uh, you know, statement of the value in having those kind of friendships. And yeah, I thought it was very sweet, especially for her in this situation. And that's the other place where I feel like it's a rehabilitation of Toby and maybe speaking to how he is going to reconcile with Rachel. That's the character flaw we've seen in Toby multiple times. And in him stating that to Libby, in a way, it's like him making that acknowledgement is maybe something he needs to extend to Rachel, but maybe he will now. That idea, I think, especially in parenthood and in middle age, where you feel like you have days where you wonder, do I even know who I am anymore? Do right. I know what I like to do in my spare mm-hmm. time? You know, <laughs> right. Right. like you kind of, you do feel like you lose yourself to all the things that are pressing in on you every day that need to be done. And you lose perspective of who you are. And I think that's part of the reason, right, that people talk about the mindless scrolling on their phones mm-hmm. and and all of that. It's because we've almost forgotten. What is it that we do like to do when we have right. a couple of exactly. hours to ourselves? <laughs> you know, it happens so rarely. So I thought that was really nicely done on a much more uh, superficial or shallow note. That barbecue looked super fun. I want to be invited <laughs> to a barbecue like that. Yeah, yeah. That looked amazing. There was corn. There was a band. Like it, it just, it looked, there were tropical drinks. It looked fantastic. Can you have a barbecue like that this summer and invite us? <laughs> yeah, we, we actually are planning the, uh, you know, the, the March get together, by the way, is going to be barbecue. So, but I, yeah, we will do that. And then we have to do more of that, by the way, because uh, we just don't see anybody anymore. I mean, I have With a tendency. COVID, man. Yes, I was going to say, I have <laughs> a tendency. Yes, I have a tendency, unfortunately, to let time slide, like all of us, right? You, you, you have to do something with your kids. You got to do something with the neighbors. You have, uh, you know, other engagements, your family's around, and then inevitably months go by without you getting together with people you'd probably choose to <laughs> hang out with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then COVID came along and that, that became like years <laughs> rather than months. Yeah. Right. So um, what else was I going to say about that? The, oh, I, I, okay. I have something I wanted to ask you given last week's episode with Rachel. And honestly, the, of course, this episode is primarily focused on Libby now. We definitely have more of a female perspective now after being so focused on Toby early on. But once again, arguably, this has all been Libby's exploration of these themes. So maybe it's of more of a female perspective than we expected early on in the show. But I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I think this show is incredible. But do you still feel like maybe the women were vilified here? And also, did you feel like they maybe didn't give us enough of Rachel after you know giving her this big episode last week, we really don't see her in this entire episode, except for like the final moment, maybe even then only in silhouette. How did you feel that they might've gotten short shrift? And what I would say is, I think you can argue that maybe this perspective of women is maybe a little vilifying of their ambitions and their interiority and maybe their quote unquote selfishness. I would argue that like, I think that this as a man, I resonate with all these same themes and the same questions I have about, you know, the decisions you made over the course of your life and definitely something additional stressors that women have to deal with, you know, because there's all this cultural pressure on being good moms as well that I don't think men deal with as much. Uh, I can sympathize with their perspectives, but I do wonder if maybe you feel that maybe some people will misread the perspective here of the female characters. Interesting. Okay. First for Rachel, I would have liked to have seen her again. 
I am personally concerned for her mental health. So even if I didn't see her, <laughs> yes. I would have liked an update on like how serious is her condition. She's in a straitjacket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, is she institutionalized or does she just need the right drugs to regulate her brain chemistry? Like, where are we with this? I was, you know, curious if nothing else. Um, but also, of course, Claire Danes, you know, I think is amazing. And I would have enjoyed seeing her again. Your question about vilifying women, interesting, because I did not see that. If anything, I saw it as like, you referenced this quote in one of our earlier discussions about this show, this idea, and I can't remember who said it. And I'm sure the quote is from like the 50s or, or, or earlier about men living lives of quiet desperation, mm -hmm. Yes, right? I, I don't remember who said it. And I think in the discussion, you said we all live lives of quiet desperation to give you credit. <laughs> but I remember when I heard the quote, it just made me roll my eyes. Like, sure, only men are living lives of quiet desperation. And I thought like this, I think very well demonstrated the idea that like we all are struggling with these issues and it's more acceptable for some of us to say it than others, but it doesn't make the feeling any less universal. So to me, I liked Libby. I liked parts of Rachel, right? And I think it was the idea of nobody is all good or all bad. And we are seeing a specific story here, right? We're not seeing everything a person has ever done in their lives in order to be able to say on the whole, this person is good on the whole, this person is bad. It's just how a person reacted in a specific situation that we are being shown. So, I mean, I honestly liked both of these characters could relate to both of these characters. Um, as I said last week with Rachel's breakdown, I almost feel like a lot of working moms would feel there, but for the grace of God, go I, the, you know, the wrong sequence of events could end right. with any one of us having a breakdown. So I didn't see it that way, but I do wonder if a man is more likely to see it that way. Yeah, that's my concern too. Oh, and just to be yeah. clear, that was Thoreau that that the you know the the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, and uh, I don't and maybe I didn't want to overliteralize it saying only men that quiet desperation. Yeah, uh, from a woman's perspective, is not something that we see that much yes. uh, in such a nuanced portrayal. Yeah, I agree. So I I appreciated that, but I do think it could be easy to see this in terms of in a more black and white terms and the right. women would not necessarily uh come off as very appealing if you took that view i see the stressors these women are under and i'm like i can appreciate what they're feeling and then yeah. extend that into wow and then they have these additional stressors so i can show that sympathy to them although i could very easily see a read of certain pockets of the po population a, you know, maybe more conservative men who are saying like, well, yeah, of course, because they're trying to step outside of their traditional gender <laughs> roles. Yeah. Uh, and B, where, uh, you know, it, it, by the way, there have been some anti, uh, I should say some feminist critique of the original novel for that very reason, saying that the, the novel is vilifying of women that, you know, like, yeah, you have ambitions, it drives you nuts. See, this is what happens, right? So I think that there is a simple read on both sides, but like, I, it, like, I totally agree with you. I think it is so nuanced. It's so deep the empathy it shows the characters that you have to read it as this person's experience not all women <laughs> you know so yeah but yeah i i do raise the question just you know because yeah think no i think it's up. a fair <laughs> question and i'm wondering too you referenced the book 
as we keep saying, neither of us have read this book. Right. I usually am of the perspective when they make a movie out of a book, I usually think I need to go read that book because it was so good that they wanted to make a movie out of it. And the movie is never as good as the book. So I'm just going to cut to the chase and read the book and go on with my life. First of all, I rarely read anymore, (laughs) read books anymore because it's time. (laughs) But, (laughs) But I'm wondering the way this story was told visually I'm wondering how that would translate to the book. And I wonder if this is, and, you know, completely speculation because I haven't read the book. I wonder if this is one of those cases where the TV show is actually better than the book, because I feel like so much was done visually here that I'm not sure how it would translate to the written word, or it could just be an extremely beautifully written book, which is also very possible. I'd assume, I mean, first of all, the main producer on this show is the author herself. So I think that she has probably slavishly translated the text to the screen. I actually am of the mind where I would like to read the book because I like the language so much in the narration, and I'm sure that's lifted directly from the book. So I'd like Mm -hmm, to get even mm -hmm. more of that. But to your point, even, and I was going to actually raise this question. I'm glad you brought it up because I forgot to bring it up earlier on, which is that I would not be surprised to find that I like the book just as much as the show, because I think the show is such a great translation of this material and the book would probably be, you know, deeper like, to your point, maybe deeper on some of the events. Maybe there's stuff that got excised additional um, moments and maybe some of the depth of the characters, like you mentioned, might be better. But there's these visual elements, you know, to some of the comedy, to some of the, um, you know, there's uh, that whole idea that a, a picture says a thousand words when they're having that argument outside where they break up. I'm sure that like the actors are conveying so much of their frustration at that moment that you may not get in the, on the page. Like you might be like, why aren't they talking anymore? What, what, cause they argued once, you know, like, I think there's a lot more mm-hmm. in, in the visual <laughs> representation of it that that's kind of makes you feel like this is maybe a final fight for them. Right. So, and uh, yeah, so I think, you know, there's things that are better in both, but I'm curious enough to, I, I would be curious to read the book and see how it translates. And I would assume at this moment that they would both be equally good in different ways, right? So I think they kind of complement each other very well. Having not read the book, <laughs> having not read right. the book. Completely <laughs> speculation. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> the blind leading the blind, having a conversation about a book <laughs> neither one of us has read. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I do wonder as well, and, and I will look this up if this uh, author has written other things, because I would certainly be interested to read other things by her as well, because I like this so much. Yeah. I think this is her only novel. This is relatively recent. So I don't know Mm -hmm, if she's written anything mm -hmm. since then. Uh, There might be essays or something that are compiled. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe some essays. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she used to write for a magazine. So I'm sure since this book was such a huge success that uh, she probably had her essays published. But yes. uh, Yeah. Very interested in seeing anything else she puts together. And, And I mean, I thought considering she was given control of this show, which is pretty rare for an author with relatively little experience to be given something so high profile. I mean, I'm sure she'll be producing more shows, to be honest with you. Yeah, I really um, can't say enough good things about this. I really, really loved it. And again, it might be because as we texted, I feel like it was specifically, <laughs> yes. you know, maybe not written with our demographic in mind, but like it, it really hits home with our demographic really just a, a beautiful expression of like the human struggle at this stage of life, I felt. Yeah, I agree. Sona, 
Have a happy new year. Happy new year. And we'll talk again next week. We will be recapping season one of your honor and preparing for season two. And maybe I'll even be able to rewatch season one of Breaking Bad. And we'll have a conversation about that also. So ambitious. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I know. Well, I have the holiday weekend to, to binge the whole first season <laughs> of the show, I guess. And all of you out there, stay tuned. Sona and myself and my sister had that continuation of the conversation from last week where we were giving awards for 2022. And we were discussing our favorite shows of the year. And now we will continue the conversation talking about performances, talking about comedies and uh, episodes of shows and that made us cry. So stay tuned for that. Every now and then I get a little bit nervous. The best of all the years have gone by. Every now and then I get a little bit terrified. Then I see the look in your eyes. Let's move on to something funnier. What was your biggest laugh of the year? It could be a show that is the funniest show, or just it could just be like one individual laugh that hit you. So I think Dave is a very funny. Dave is very funny. I would just say that there was no season of Dave this year. So I don't know if you want to put it in for this year. That was from 21 or 20. The stuff I think is funny is not really from this year. Okay, I have a funny show yeah. um, in the traditional sitcom format. And it's one that... I kind of had to search my mind for because like I said, I think, uh, Victor, maybe you're going to prove me wrong with your subsequent comment, but it's, it's hard to find a good sitcom these yeah. days. And this one, not many people are talking about it. I don't think it's like a secret, but um, it's on, I think the same night as Abbott Elementary. It's called Home Improvement. And I've never seen this. No. Go ahead. Yeah. It has um, Topher Grace, hmm. Sashir Zameda, isn't it? Who used to be on SNL. Um, and it's kind of about these siblings and their partners and how they relate to each other. And it's a very traditional sitcom format in a lot of ways, but it does meet that requirement that we talked about, about making me laugh out loud at least once per episode. They have some clever running gags and it's just very cute, very sweet, very innocuous no layers to it, standard sitcom, but I do really enjoy it, I have to say. Huh, interesting. Home economics. Yeah, maybe mm -hmm. it's paired up. I think you're right. It's paired up with um, Abbott Elementary. Interesting. All right. I'm going to tell you the show I was going to recommend. This show just came back for season three on HBO just a week ago. So it's a perfect time to bring it up. I have not caught up on season three, so it's a little bit of a cheat, uh, although they're only like three episodes into season three. But I caught up with the show this year for the first time. I had heard this thing recommended multiple times and I never checked it out. It's a show called Southside on HBO. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of this? I haven't before? heard of it. No, me neither. This is just a group of friends. They went to high school together. They have like, they've dated some of the same people. It's like 10, you know, tenuously re related to each other. And it takes place on the South side of Chicago. There's some cops that also are partners that kind of float in and out of the show. But the primary hub is these twin brothers and the staff of a rent-a-center type place where they go and they have to reclaim rental properties <laughs> that people have like not returned. That's basically the, the framework of the show. And it just allows them to go to these different places around town and reclaim these things. And a lot of famous comedians roll in and out of this. You really get to know these characters. Like they actually have interior lives and stuff and they have like little arcs and, and whatever. But this show, no joke, these episodes are 20 minutes long 
And I will just watch one of these episodes before I go to sleep. And I'm like savoring them. I will laugh four, five, 10 times per episode. I laugh by myself, by the way. I rarely, even when I laugh at something, when I say something is funny, I don't laugh out loud when I'm watching something by myself. I will laugh out loud repeatedly watching this show. The chemistry between these characters, I think a lot of the dialogue is improvised, but the way they just react to being in some of these circumstances is so absolutely hysterical. Like it's, I can't recommend this enough as mm. like a palate cleanser for the day. It's very foul mouth, by the way, but it feels like a sitcom. It could be like mm-hmm, an mm-hmm. Abbott Elementary like sitcom, mm-hmm. but uh, foul mouth and on HBO so they can say anything they want. It is hilarious. But the characters are not stereotypes at all. Like one of the guys who lives in this you know, inner city neighborhood, he's like really into astrology and he runs like an astrology group via like Zoom every single day. And that's his real passion. So everybody's very quirky. Everybody has these like really fun relationships to with each other. Like for example, the police officers, this, her booty call is like a gangster. So that's kind of a funny tension between the two of them. It's, it's as simple as that. There's nothing deep to this show at all. It's just hysterically funny. And, uh, but like you love all the characters. They're very sweet in their own way. So I, I, I love the mm. show. Yeah. I just and, added it. Yeah. Thank you. I have not even burned through it because I just find like a single episode will make me laugh so much. I'm just like after watching whatever, like Bones and All, which I just watched recently, this depressing cannibal romance movie. I'm like, I need a little palate cleanser. Let me watch 20 minutes. <laughs> Let me watch 20 minutes of Southside. <laughs> Where is Bones and All? You can rent it. It's actually Timothy Chalamet. It's from the guy who directed the new Suspiria remake and the Call Me By Your Name. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's like a road movie about these two cannibals that are you know, on the run. So it's actually an interesting and beautiful movie. But an acquired taste. <laughs> All right. So that's my funny one. Oh, and you know what, Celia? I mean, you can talk about this too. The one discovery this week, I, I did this year, I want to talk about being funny. Something that definitely is inspired by Atlanta, by the way, is the show Dave that you mentioned, which is coming back in this year. And we definitely will talk about the show more in 2023 because there will be another season of Dave. It will be out in 2023. I feel it a little try hard. It's trying a little too hard to be Atlanta. I think it's very uneven, but it is very funny. And I will call out the one thing that I found to be the funniest thing I saw on that entire year of catching up on television. And Sona, I recommend this. It is very, very foul-mouthed. But the third episode of Dave, you can just watch it on its own. It's the bottle episode where he's trying to negotiate his sex life with his girlfriend. Oh my God, this is the funniest thing I have seen in years. Like I Mm -hmm. was hysterical. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. It is insane. And I was hysterically like laughing five, eight minutes into this episode and the places it goes in a 25 minute period was insane, utterly insane. But the final moment on this, the button on this episode, I was rolling. I was rolling. It's not always that funny, but man, that third episode of season one, the very third episode they ever shot, unbelievable. Maybe as a sales pitch, Sona, the places the show goes, it goes to like such ridiculously taboo places. And it is so sweet because they are trying to like be good lovers for each other. And the, the, the degrees they go to all in character, it's incredible. Like it's an incredible achievement in gross out, in gross out comedy. <laughs> It's, it's not even so that gross. cringy, it's, it's by the way. It's kind of cringy. It's not even gross out. It's cringy. All right. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, we'll talk about Dave Moore this year when it comes back. Um, a show that made you cry, right? Uh, Sona, you go. This will be easier. We have lots of shows that made us cry. 
Yes. I don't know if it's something about middle age, but it seems like almost a hair trigger response sometimes. But dead to me, as I spoke about, I think on one of the prior episodes with Christina Applegate, Linda Cardellini, final season of the show, Christina Applegate, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but is going through medical struggles of her own in her personal life. There is a cancer storyline. Christina Applegate does not have cancer currently, Knockwood, that I know of, but a lot of issues relating to mortality and how to deal with that and female friendship and what it means in that context of when you're struggling with these issues of health issues, mortality issues, and just really beautifully done and so moving and so unexpected for me for this show, even though it's always been about grieving on some level, it addresses it so head on in the final half of this final season that I basically just cried my way through the last four episodes, probably. Well, that's a sales pitch to somebody. (laughs) 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 Celia, what was yours? Do you have one? Is Tales from the Loop something we can talk about on? I Because I, I thought that was very sad. Yeah, I think I got very emotional during that show. I don't think that's a current year, but um, you did catch up with it this year. So we can talk about that and also try to see if you have anything from this current year that you would bring up. And Station Eleven was oh, my yeah. cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So emotional, the entire series. Yeah. And Tales from the Loop, if anybody catches up on that, is heartbreaking almost the entire time. The mood of the series is heartbreaking. And they sustain that for the entire series, which is very impressive. On the movie side of things, by the way, my biggest laugh of the year and my biggest cry of the year was probably Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which I hysterically laughed multiple times throughout the entirety of that film. And then I bawled like a child (laughs) at different times of that film. So it's just an incredible, incredible piece of work. If you guys haven't seen that yet, definitely catch up on it. I think it's on the top of most people's top 10 lists for best movie of the year. But that was on the movie side of things. On the TV side of things, definitely, by the way, Tales from the Loop, which I also caught up with this year. I definitely got lumps in my throat a couple of times over the course of that show. Same thing with Station Eleven. But I think, and maybe there's some proximity bias here, and I don't cry a lot during TV shows in general, even though like I did make a fool of myself crying during everything, everywhere, uh, all at once in a movie theater. <laughs> Recent show that I think had a real emotional impact on me, and maybe this will be a performer of the year too, is Emily Blunt talking about her son in the English. That really got to me. Like That was really heartbreaking. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, and just so there's some context in the English, which is like a Western uh, set mm-hmm. in the 1880s, and Emily Blunt is stars in it and is one of the producers. And it's created and directed by, written and directed by the same person who did The Honorable Woman. So it's from the same British creator as that. And her son has died and she comes to the US to get revenge or something. She has a plan which gets more complicated as the show progresses. And like I said, it's one of my honorable mention shows for the year as well. And Emily Blunt, definitely one of my performers of the year for this performance. She's talking about her son at one point, finally kind of lays out her backstory. And it is just devastating, like totally devastating. Mm -hmm. So another reason to watch that show, if you want a good cry, let's, you want to do, you want to just do performer of the year, male, female? I like Claire Dane's character's. Um, performance so far, the one, the performance you think is annoying, I <laughs> yeah. think is one of the best performances I've seen this year. I in see, it's a woman mm-hmm. thing, maybe, maybe, perhaps. I don't know. I just like think so much that, in life, Celia. Yes. 
<laughs> but we relate to her. Like, I don't think she's being over the top. I find her performance when she is in this condition completely relatable. I feel so sorry for her. Like, I just am so concerned about her. I see where she's coming from. I feel like those people who are hugging her at the support group, like, so she did a really good job there. So I'm going to nominate her. Did you agree with that song? Did you have any, uh, an alternate favorite? I do agree. I think uh, some of the acting in Better Call Saul was fantastic this season, as it is every season. Oh, yeah. But yes. I think uh, to go with, I wouldn't say a less obvious choice because she's one of the main characters, but I think Rhea Seahorn did an amazing job oh, in yeah. this season. Mm-hmm. Um, what's coming to mind is that episode where she is supposed to go to Gus's door, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the gun. Mm-hmm. And I just remember her performance being so compelling there and oh, yeah. really on the edge of my seat. Like, what is she going to do? Is she actually going to do this? What's going to happen? You know, I mean, she just really was riveting to watch, I felt at times. Yeah, she's definitely on my list of best uh, actors and actresses for the year. No, and no I have doubt. traditionally not been a huge fan of the Kim character, but I really? thought she did okay. an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah, I think she was incredible this year, uh, even more so than she has been in the past, for sure. On the actor side of things, I'm trying to see who would I put here as best actor. Who would I put on this list? Um, in the movie side of things, I would definitely, my best actor of the year, if I can include movies in this, is Colin Farrell, not only for the Banshees in the Sheeran, which is probably what he's going to get his Academy Award nomination for. He already has a Golden Globe nomination for that performance. But for I hear me, it's fantastic. Yeah. He's very it's good. So in that. good. But the reason I wanted to give him the award this year is for the disparity in his performances in three different movies. He's got this clueless, naive character that darkens in Banshees of Inishirin, hilariously funny, even when he's at his darkest, you know, it's just incredible uh, duality there. But Sona, something I recommended here on the show, which I think is still available to you on Showtime, after Yang, he's the star of that. Mm -hmm, And this mm -hmm. dad who is dealing with the situation with his daughter there's a show, there's a movie, by the way, that made me cry. You know, any dad daughter thing is going to make me cry, but it's just incredible that film and his performance is so different and so good. And one more performance, he plays the penguin in the Batman movie under all that makeup, completely unrecognizable, completely over the top, crazy performance. And like just three completely different performances all in the same year. This is an incredible, he used to be an actor that annoyed me. He was just so mannered and so, you know, not a actor I cared about at all. And now he's become this incredible character actor, like one of my, you know, he's almost like worth the price of admission in general with his movie. So a turnaround for him, but three really great performances all in the same year. So for me, definitely. I remember when he used to annoy you because I would be like, he's so hot. Oh my God, I love him so much. Oh, there he is again. Oh, look at him. And Victor's like, I don't get it. He's not even that good uh, an actor. I'm like, he's amazing. There's so much about him that's amazing. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) <laughs> he had the same, I had the same issue with him that I had with Brad Pitt earlier in his career, where he's acting so hard. Like, he's just like, look how hard I can act. I can chew gum while I, and I have this weird accent and it's just like, okay, okay, stop. Like, don't do so much. And now he's just like, he does convey so much and he barely moves. And I'm just like, that's the kind of acting, that's the kind of acting I like. That's what I like to see. <laughs> yeah. See, I was ahead of the game by being so admiring of him. For so many years. You saw so. you, you saw that. I'm glad you see it now. 
and, and by the way, he has lost those mannerisms that, for example, Brad Pitt still bothers me. Like I watch something like Bullet Train and he still irritates me. But then I watch something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I think that's, he's incredible in that. So he can be plus or minus. For me, with Colin Farrell at this point, like I just think he's good all the time. Like I think he's great in the Dumbo movie. <laughs> he's good in everything. <laughs> Actors and actress. Okay, let's move on to some of these uh, more fun um, topics. Worst decisions. What's your worst decision, Celia? Well, I mean, there's a couple of them. Let's talk about Dahmer. The worst decisions in the world are the cops letting Dahmer go, even after the most horrifying things are happening in front of them, covered in blood, yet still letting Dahmer go. So we talked about that a lot. Um, Also, Tales from the Loop. Those guys should not have switched lives because what happens after that is just heartbreaking all around. Well, they didn't like know. on and on. They didn't know what was going to happen when they went in. I but wouldn't then have done it they, though. They didn't undo it. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, that that was a bad. And then you just talked about it. The banshees of Inchidim, just Colin constantly still approaching <laughs> his neighbor after the things he threatened to do to himself. So bad decision there. I like the townspeople's faces, though, whenever he yeah. is about to make another bad decision. They're like, oh, no, here he comes again. They <laughs> are hilarious. Yeah, yeah Son, if you ever catch up with that sh- movie, that is a film that is so hysterically funny and goes so dark. I have heard that. I'm going to need to watch it. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, if you turn it off at the halfway point, you'll just think like, wow, what a funny movie. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, things, things, <laughs> things get much darker. Term. Things get much darker. Not not as dark as they, I mean, not like we're not talking like Dahmer dark, but it's, uh, you know, it gets darker for sure. So did you have anything, uh, Sona, bad decisions? Interesting. Yeah. White Lotus does have some bad decisions, but the thing that is most front of mind right now, and it probably is a recency effect since I just watched this 24 hours ago, <laughs> but Toby Fleischman's total neglect yes. of his mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> wife's mental health or what trying to figure out not just for his sake, but in her sake, but for her children's sake, what has happened to their mother? <laughs> right. You have a key to the apartment, you know, just let yourself in when, I mean, he does eventually do that, but at one point, right, she's home. And right. if he had done, if, if Toby had just called the police <laughs> <laughs> to go back to an old joke, but you know, there are just many modes of intervention that he could have attempted but didn't because he was feeling so self-righteous. And at what cost? I mean, the kids right. are going to remember this time that their mom went missing. It's already going to be traumatizing enough. And I think he's added to that. Oh, I totally agree. But to add to that, to piggyback directly on that, the uh, I felt watching this particular episode, Toby could have just walked in that door at any time, just shown, just extended her compassion beyond his ego, what his bruised ego would allow. And this could have been averted. But I would also say very bad decision-making is over and over again, as I was watching this most recent episode, I kept thinking she needs to go see somebody. Like Claire Danes needs to go see someone. And the fact that she tells the story back going back years, I'm not going to go see a counselor. I don't need to get therapy. I feel like if she had at some point taken a moment to reflect before she got to a complete breaking point, she wouldn't have gotten there, right? Basically. And uh, so I do think that there's bad decisions on both sides of that situation. I don't see those things as comparable whatsoever, but I will. I understand the (laughs) logic of your argument, but I I don't agree with you. I agree with Sona also. Like he could have just walked in and he was being self-righteous. I completely agree with that. Do you have uh, individually any, like what are you looking forward to the most this year? Do you have any particular 
shows. I'm looking forward to the last season of The Handmaid's Tale. I just want to see the dread be over. Sona? I'm looking forward to the final season of Never Have I Ever, not to be uh, beat a broken, beat a dead horse. There's something about, there's another phrase about a broken <laughs> something that I'm not grasping at the moment. Sound like a broken record or beat a dead Thank horse. Thank you, broken record. <laughs> <laughs> Much less graphic. Beat than a broken a horse. horse. Beat a broken record. Let's just beat that broken horse <laughs> until it's dead. Hmm, not sure what else, but I also, you know, I'm not one to be to be super informed about what's coming up. So I'm sure there is stuff out there that I'm looking forward to, and I'm just not thinking of it at the moment. In my brilliant friend, I can't wait for that to come back. Yeah, final season of that. Yep, love that series. There's so much coming out this year. So much coming out this year that. I just going to touch on some things that are coming just in January that, you know, and maybe we'll do this every month because there's, it's incredible that last year was so chock a block full of things. And this year's even maybe more impressive. Here's something you might be interested in, Sona, is that Frasier is getting its reboot this year. It's coming to Peacock. I heard about that. And something that might be uh, something you look forward to, Celia, is um, Tokyo Vice is coming back for season two. That was great. Very uh, moody. The White Lotus. I agree. I want to. I'm looking forward to that. Also, The White Lotus is coming back for a second, for a third season. Probably not this year. I think it's kind of ambitious to put it on this list because I don't think it's going to be available by the end of the year, even if they start shooting it soon. Stranger Things wraps up this year, also for people who are Stranger Things fans. And uh, just a couple of things I was going to call out for January. I'll keep this relatively short. Of course, we're going to be covering The Last of Us. That's going to be our next big coverage. Uh, Sona. We're going to be covering. Your Honor, season two, the first, the <laughs> second right. and final season of yes. Your Honor is coming back in a couple of weeks, also a few weeks. And just some other things, uh, Celia, that you might be interested in. Uh, there's a new show coming to Netflix first week of January called Copenhagen Cowboy from, Ooh, it's from Cowboys. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not the cowboy you think, but it's uh, from Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed Drive and too old to die young just recently. So that's going to be weird and probably interesting. Oh, and Celia, also another one for you is that Servant is finishing up this year if you want to watch that. Sona, what was, uh, who's the girl who was in Russian Doll? What's her name? Natasha Leon. Yes, she has a new show called Poker Face, which is coming on Peacock also later this month. Her version of Columbo, which is kind of what she was auditioning for <laughs> in uh, Russian Doll as well. And mm -hmm, she goes, mm -hmm. and she has this kind of weird ability to solve crimes. It's supposed to be very entertaining. I've heard very good early reviews for it. It comes from Ryan Johnson, the guy who directed Knives Out, and of course, Glass Onion, which is available on Netflix today, everybody. But this is his follow-up to that successful film, which I think is going to be have huge blockbuster numbers on Netflix. Now it's this show, Poker Face. It's 10 episodes. It starts at the end of January. So just one more thing uh, to watch this month on, on television in a year that is going to be packed, completely packed, month to month with stuff. And we will be trying to guide you to good content. Hey, we had a pretty good at batting average when it comes to Emmys and awards, et cetera. So stick with us and we'll try to get you to mm -hmm. the right shows. Although we did, maybe we'll talk about disappointments very briefly here in the last couple of minutes. But I'd say my biggest disappointment recently was The Patient, which I thought, yep. speaking of great episodes, like the Ezra episode in a not great show, Great, great episode. But I think, Sona, you crystallized this when you said this is a show that you would have watched the serial killer part of it. You would have watched the family dynamics <laughs> part of it, but maybe not in the same show. Right. And I completely yes. agree. It did not reconcile those two parts of the show at all, I think. 
great episode in a bad series would be like the first episode of the old man where he just beats that guy up and he the like, first two episodes so of- impressive Oh my God, Sona. So yeah, the first two episodes of that show directed by John Watts, the guy who's done the most recent uh, Spider-Man cycle of films are so exceptionally good that I'm like, man, I this show wasn't even on my radar, but this is going to be one of the shows of the year. And maybe it's my expectations. That show went right down the toilet after those first two episodes. <laughs> it's a disaster. But uh, wow, those first two episodes are so great. I tell everybody, watch those first two episodes and then stop <laughs> immediately. Mm-hmm. And I just want to throw out that everybody should watch Welcome to Chippendales. I'm only on the second episode, but wow, it is so much fun. So much energy, such a weird story. It, and it's based great. on a true story, right? Oh, it's so yeah. good. You have to see it. The music is amazing. I added some songs to my Spotify. It's great. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is I have not seen a minute of that show, although it always tries to autoplay after the Fleischman show. I mean- <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Constantly. Let we- it. It's so good. Is that how you ended up watching it, Celia? Yeah, just, you know what? I was on the on. treadmill that running away and I'm like They're jogging. They're going to force you to watch it. No, it, it just, it did autoplay and I'm like, I still had like 15 minutes to go. So I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. So I was like hooked though, literally hooked. I took a shower, turned on the TV, started it over, watched it on a much bigger screen. I'm riveted. And the only thing I was going to add is I have not seen a minute of that, although it does want to play constantly. But I would add that I did read the article that this is based on, and this is a crazy, crazy story. So mm-hmm. if they can get that to the screen, what uh, the, the kind of the craziest moments of this show, it should be a very, very entertaining watch. And it does sound like Celia is having that experience right now. So check that out, everybody. And uh, yeah, we will touch base on other things maybe for the year as we go through the rest of the month. Thank you, everybody, for talking to me again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Sona, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, and all that stuff. Happy Holidays, guys. Hope to see you soon. Yeah. Yes. Same here. (laughs) Bye. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye.